Welcome back to the 206th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how Biden's climate agenda may be uh, undercutting some of the infrastructure deal that he wanted to make, how the democracy of America is threatened, and how they're trying to motivate young people to get out there and uh, affect change in 2024, and a Interesting article talking about Britain and its fall from grace in a current global affair that's involved in. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, instead of rambling for me, let's jump into our daily debate. So, when a president or a person, actually, no, we're going to get rid of the presidency on this one. When a person has an agenda, they have a goal that they want to achieve. And then they do something that directly undermines, or at least partially undermines, the achieving of that goal. Do you tell that person to their face that they need to change what they're doing? Do you, you know, gently guide them in the right direction? You know, maybe this is a personal friend of yours. Uh, what what do you do in that case? Because right now, Joe Biden's doing the exact. Ah, okay, sorry. Just answer that in the comment section. Now, let's jump to the first article where I'll talk about what's happening, and. This one comes from Fox News, so of course they have their biases, but the headline reads, Biden allies turn against key part of his climate agenda. So for anyone who is keeping track of all of the different developments in the climate arena, you know that there has been a big development or at least uh, a push towards hydrogen as a type of fuel because you can just split H2O into hydrogen and oxygen atoms and then you can collect the hydrogen and use that as fuel and there's even companies trying to make uh, semi-trucks that use hydrogen energy to get where they need to go and this sort of energy has been the talk of green activists has been the talk of green legislators regulators for quite some time and when Biden was going through with Build Back Better and then later the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, where he's putting in lots of different stipulations for subsidies and uh, investment in different key industries in order to build up infrastructure. It's a very general name for infrastructure rather than it being about roads and bridges, but everything else that would be included in that, in Biden's perspective, is industry and things like that. But that's besides the point. What he was trying to do is stimulate our internal economy, our really innovative sectors, as well as some of our industrial base or potential new industrial bases, just like hydrogen batteries or hydrogen fuel or hydrogen cars would be. But now Biden's administration is actually putting through a type of regulation where I take that back. It's not just Biden's administration. It's kind of the bureaucracy that lies underneath him in the domain of the secretary or sorry, the energy secretary. So this is not all him, but it does come from his administration and it could have gotten his green light. I'm assuming it got his green light. Otherwise, why would you have a presidency like that? Why not just have a bureaucracy that goes through? Oh, wait, because we are a elected democracy and we do actually trust the people we put in there to put in policy. So we can say pretty confidently that Biden has at least been aware of this. And some of his critics and some of his former supporters who have turned critics are coming out and saying, whoa, 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 this new regulation this is actually undercutting what you wanted to do in the IRA. Quote, in highly anticipated guidance released last month, the White House, Treasury Department, 
and Department of Energy proposed rules governing tax credits for hydrogen power production, which advocates believe will be a critical tool for decarbonization. The guidance, though, tethers the Inflation Reduction Act's high production credit of $3 per kilogram of hydrogen produced is strict or is a too strict of an eco standard. Quote, the Biden administration's proposal attempts to launch a green hydrogen and industry while guarding against any potential of emissions increasing during initial commercial deployment, said J- uh, Jason Grummet, I believe is how you pronounce his name, the CEO of American Clean Power Association, a clean power industry group often allied with the Biden administration. So this is something even broader, and we'll address the specific rule here in a little bit when uh, we read the more specifics that are going on. But the overall idea here, the overall message that you can take away from this is they want to move too fast. They want to imply, they want to put into place all of these different green energy standards, more solar, more wind, so on and so forth, and they want to lower the emissions as quickly as possible. So they're trying to restrict the means by which these companies can actually acquire their hydrogen because, as we'll talk about, hydrogen, right now, we need electricity in order to actually uh, split the atoms. So they're going to restrict the... I don't want to get into all the details because we'll get to that here in a second, but basically they're going to restrict the type of electricity and how long they can use that electricity for because it doesn't come from green sources yet. And they're trying to make sure that in the future it does, which sounds great. But remember, a majority of our electricity, a majority of the power that we have is made from non-renewable resources. It's made from coal, natural gas. So we're in a transition period where we're not fully at capacity of green energy where it can actually take over and help with a lot of these processes. In the future, if there's enough hydrogen production, and maybe they can refine hydrogen fuel to be a even cleaner burning fuel that can run some of these plants and make electricity, then we could have you know hydrogen-powered electricity plants making more hydrogen, or, you know, giving the electricity to the companies making more hydrogen. Maybe that is a future possibility, and it's going to be semi-self-sustaining, even though I'm, I'm pretty sure the, the math wouldn't exactly work out there because, well, at the end of the day, if it takes a certain amount of energy to split something, then it probably isn't going to produce more energy than it takes then again, it's kind of different because if we were able to make a hydrogen fuel that isn't just going to explode on us, but we're able to make one that would actually be uh, usable in these different power plants, you would probably have to mix it with something else. But then, once again, you're getting into more technical processes that carry that take more electricity. So that may not be a totally renewable thing. But the idea is there that we want to have a clean energy system in the future. And if we can't get to it right at this moment, and they're putting on heavier restrictions that are going to make the job of the innovators harder. So imagine this. Imagine you're trying to create a brand new product, but then the government who says, hey, we're going to give you a tax credit. We're going to come in and, and help you. And they say, but in order to innovate, and get this tax credit at the same time, you're going to have to only do one thing, one part of your process, for only about three hours a day. And you say, okay, one part of the process, that's not that big of a deal, but if it's, you know, halfway through the supply chain, or, sorry, halfway through the uh, 
assembly line or if it's just at the beginning, if it's at the end, it creates a bottleneck. You're actually limiting. So if the companies that, you know, they want to still have this investment, they still want to have these different tax credits, these different subsidies, while also continuing to innovate at the same rate, they're actually going to have to slow down their innovation or at least the creation of their product in order to get the money to help them survive. And guess what? That's not helping anybody. You would rather have the open competition where the government isn't putting its weight on any particular scale or in any particular company and a place where innovation is put first, especially in this new industry. You want to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. You don't want to limit innovation. And I understand what Biden's doing here with the tax credit. He's trying to spur innovation. It's a private sector funding, like a grant of Uh, Sorry, it's a public sector funding of a private company in order to encourage innovation. But if you're going to directly limit the company by its uh, production capabilities, then you're going to actually stymie that innovation. So is it actually going to be worth it? So I've talked around it enough. Let's actually talk about what the specific regulation is. Quote, the hydrogen production tax credits are some of the most generous clean energy incentives earmarked under the IRA. Democrats' massive climate and tax bill President Biden signed in August 2022 and are both up to, so both of these tax credits can earn up to $100 billion when dispersed across the economy. The legislation marked the nation's most ambitious effort yet to spur the growth of hydrogen, blah, 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 blah. But a common pathway for hydrogen production is electrosis, a process by which hydrogen is split from water using an electric current. While the only emissions from the electrosis are hydrogen and oxygen, the environmentalists have argued that hydrogen reliance could be rendered pointless as a zero-emission power source if the electricity generated for that process is generated from fossil fuel sources. So, here is the Treasury Department's Uh, quote when they're trying to release this new regulation the clean hydrogen production credit aims to make production of clean hydrogen with minimal climate pollution more economically competitive and accelerate development of u.s clean hydrogen industry and in order to get the tax credit you have to be using green energy such as solar or wind And it has to be within the last three-year period, essentially, in order to create your product. So if you've been doing this hydrogen innovation and you've been doing this electrosis, but you've been using fossil fuels before you started transitioning to all these different green energies that are now coming out of nowhere, then you probably won't be eligible for this tax credit. And it's ironic because those are the ones that have been around the longest who probably have the most refined processes who have started to... Uh, actually target different areas where they've started to notice inefficiencies because they've had the time to make mistakes or at least notice some bugs. And that's where that money would be the most useful in actually spurring innovation. But no, it's going to go to the small little guys who they could be still doing a good job, but they're probably small for a very particular reason. And maybe they have a very green angle and that's why they're still small and they're going to get a government subsidy. And while it could spur innovation and force a new battle of competition and maybe they do win out there's always the possibility that they become not reliant but they get used to that tax subsidy and then when the tax subsidy goes out of the way they die off so that's why tapering tax subsidy programs are very important i hope that everybody for this tax subsidy has to reapply each year which is normally the case they have to reapply each year and 
it has to be less money each year. So it's not an ongoing subsidy that doesn't sunset or doesn't stay exactly the same. It should slowly lower so that companies still have to make sure they're doing really good and they can't rely on that guaranteed income coming in at the exact same rate from the government. So they do have to make sure they're cutting out inefficiencies and still try to stay competitive with everybody else, even with that extra million or $2 million bonus. Or I take that back, not necessarily bonus, but deduction on taxes or things of that nature. That's what I would hope. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not going to always get what I want. And my thoughts are evolving on subsidies. For a while there, I was totally for it because, hey, you help certain industries, especially domestic ones. Then I was reading a little bit more, and it is a system to prop up the economy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We've had a public-private relationship for a long time in order to get a lot of the great technology that we have here. Uh, in our daily lives and affect the way that we go about existing. I mean, you know, GPS, radar, microwaves, so on and so forth. Um, but I do understand the argument that it is the government putting their hand on the scale and possibly edging out other con- companies that may come out on top if the government wasn't involved or even completely different industries that didn't get the tax credits and will be drowned by all the people going to hydrogen and all the engineers that these hydrogen companies would now be able to buy in the free market that could be used in a different industry that may be burgeoning. So uh, I've become a little bit more sympathetic to that point of view, but that doesn't mean I'm not amenable. Uh, there's lots of more uh, research to be done on that one. But this is a very practical example of what is going on here with these tax credits and what overregulation looks like. When you have a plan to spur innovation and then you go and undercut it with your own regulations, it is just a little sad to say the least. And it's also sad that this wasn't mentioned in the original legislation. It had to be uh, ironed out in the agency afterwards. I don't want all legislation to be 150 pages, but the legislator is supposed to decide these things rather than having these sort of things ironed out within the agency. If you want to iron out how you're going to give them that tax subsidy, whether it's lump sum, whether blah, 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 or these sort of more nuanced things like, oh, how are we actually going to get them to it? Those are what those administrations are for, actually actuating and acting upon the legislation that comes through. That's the point of the executive, to enforce the laws, to have the different administrations there that can actually turn legislation into action. And... Instead, they're having regulations, basically addendums put on the legislation, like, oh, the legislator didn't specify, so now we can make our own rule about it. It's basically rule by executive or uh, actualization uh, through changing the standards by the executive. So uh, it's just an interesting one I wanted to point out there. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of executive power anyway, so if you couldn't tell by all the different uh, perspectives from all the different points of view on the aisle. I have about a whole bunch of things, but still uh, always railing against authority. And when it's concentrated in one branch, it's a uh, no, no bueno. So our next article comes from Common Dreams. And the headline reads, in 2024, rise up from your couch and save democracy. So this was a very in- interesting Interesting is a pointless word, so I'm going to try to avoid it. It was a very uh, impassioned and potentially encouraging article to some people and a dissuasive one to others because it may sound like this author is preaching a little bit, but his heart's in the right place. 
and they're trying to really push the people who complain about everything that goes on in our political system to really get out there and vote. Now, since it is coming from uh, Common Dreams, it does have a very particular slant, as per always. It leans a little bit to the left, but that doesn't mean what they're saying isn't going to apply to the other side of the aisle as well. And we need to hear out these sort of things because while I don't necessarily think democracy is going to end after 2024, I think, I think that is giving very little credit to democracy. Now, then again, everything that is made of humans by humans is fallible. So it's always possible, but I think it doesn't give enough credit to democracy. I do want to hear his perspective because maybe there's wisdom to be gleaned here and maybe he has a point. And if he does turn out to be right, maybe I can go back and say, Oh, well he pointed out these things and I, you know, I didn't see it. So it's one of those things where you're taking in information and hopefully at some point in the future you'll actually retain it and be able to glean a little bit of extra something that you don't get from it right this moment. So he goes on in the first few paragraphs to talk about his previous articles and talk about soccer, but this is where I want to start with us today. Quote, it's easy to hope for outcomes. In fact, I think too many of us are doing exactly that, sinking deeper into our couches open-mouthed and dumbfounded as America gets ready to toss the principles that were forged right here in Philadelphia in the late 1700s right down the memory hole. Many of us know who are so resigned to the most negative outcome that the American or the United States becomes a dictatorship 20 days into 2025 that they are seriously talking about leaving the country. Many more are pinning their hopes in 2024 on judges in Denver or ju jurors in Atlanta or some other deus machina to swoop down from the heavens to save the American experiment so they don't have to. So obviously they're talking here, I mean, when you have things like, oh, jurors in Denver, they're talking about the possibility, oh, and dictatorship within 20 days of 2025. No one else is calling anybody else a dictator. I mean, maybe Trump is calling Joe Biden a dictator, but they're obviously talking about Trump here. And they're saying, if you don't want this man to be your president again, if you don't want to be complacent in all of this, get out there, make your voice heard. And he goes on to give uh, more specific things as well. But the point is that too many people nowadays, they do sit on the sidelines and they don't care. I mean, if you look at midterm elections, what is the turnout for each party compared to the general? It's much, much lower. And when Donald Trump's not on the ticket, it's also much lower, even on, you know, main year elections or in some cases uh, when you have, and when I say main year elections, I don't just mean in 2024 or 2020 or 2016. I also mean like regular elections within states, like the 2023 for governor. I believe the last one in Kentucky was held, it would have been in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so those sort of regular elections, those big time elections, uh, they don't, if they don't have Trump on the ballot, then MAGA's not doing it as well. If the president's not on the ballot for the normal, those elections or the 2024, then the party down below isn't going to do as well. We know how turnout is. And that's just kind of the nature of the system. There are people who are politically engaged and there are people who are not. He's talking specifically to the people who are semi-politically engaged and they're frightened about what's going to happen, but they're not actually doing anything about it. Basically, how dare you, if you believe that Trump shouldn't be in there, how dare you put all of your hopes and prayers on the judges? 
And let's be clear, the author doesn't necessarily get into all of the specifics. He does talk about a few, but there's one that I think he's totally, totally not talking about, which is donating to different nonprofits and organizations that uh, spread your political opinion, that get out the vote in certain areas, or even giving directly to candidates so they can get ads out there, so on and so forth. So those sort of things he doesn't necessarily go to. He goes to a few specific things, which are kind of more along the activism route with a few like uh, campaigny things sprinkled in there. So I'll read those to you very quickly, and we'll break it down a little bit. Quote, There needs to be an active pro-democracy movement in the United States that is bigger, more visible, and more determined than the MAGA movement that seeks to destroy it. They should be organizing right now, crafting new messages, posting on TikTok, making themselves known, knocking on doors, registering every voter, and talking to and listening to the millions of disillusioned young people. So this part is what I love. This is the beautiful thing about our system. You can get out there on the ground and you can change things. And if there's one thing I'm taking away from this author, it's that he does not want you to sit there and not participate. You have the ability, you have the agency, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, no matter what faction on that side of the aisle you're on, you have the ability to go out there and change things. Not just things themselves, conditions, but change people's minds. Talk to them. And let's be clear, when he says go out to talk to young voters, I think that's honestly a brilliant move. Just listen. Talk to them about their problems. Understand their day-to-day. And if you have a particular political ideology and they talk to you about a certain issue, and within your ideology there is a way to fix it that is consistent, logical, maybe bring it up. Say, hey, you could vote for this person. And then you say not just, oh, yeah, vote for this person, and then leave it there. You also say, hey, follow up with a letter to them. Say that you're going to send them like $5 in the mail and write a letter along with it so that they know you're supporting them. Or even I'll write something myself. I I talk to all these young people, Mr. Potential President, Mrs. Potential Senator. I talk to all these people. I'm going to send you a letter so that you know what's on their minds. You You may not care whatsoever, but just so you know, so you can actually speak accurately to a certain segment of the population, here's what the young people are thinking. Here's what the people in my old folks' home are thinking. Get out there, register voters. You can do that yourself. You can do a register drive. All you have to do is go to the county clerk, wherever you are, for the, sorry, the county uh, voter registration area. You can get cards, and then they have to be returned within 36 hours. So you are there as a witness. You see everybody sign and fill out everything. They do need a little bit of personal information, but then you can take it back to them, and they can be registered to vote wherever you are, as long as they are a resident of that county. And they're not just, you know, stopping in or even if they're a college student, if they have a, if they have a address on campus, then they can register to vote there. So you can get out and do that with some of your friends. Door knocking. That's always a really good one. Getting out there on the campaign. And the reason that's another good one is you just get to talk to people. I went out and door knocked for a campaign in Kentucky. And I'll tell you. It was great going out there for a cause, but it was even more satisfying just talking to people. And that's also because a lot of people don't answer the door. You're kind of leaving literature behind every once in a while. But when you get that one or two people that actually want to talk and have a conversation, it's delightful. And I know some people don't like door knocking. So then, yeah, you can make TikTok videos. You don't have to put your face out there. You can put random uh, words up on the page or you can have articles flash up or you can provide links to different resources and things like that. The more civic engagement we have, well, also you still do the rest of your job. You're not a pure activist. That's not your job. 
but on the side, whenever you can, promoting democracy and trying to make sure that your point of view is heard, people's like you point of view is heard, your side of the aisle's point is heard, that's ever more important to increasing the conversation and allowing for our democracy slash republic to really, really thrive. A republic and a democracy, mainly more of a republic, really demands a population that is well-informed. And you may be saying, well, hold on, hold on, with a republic, a representative democracy, however you want to phrase it, well, the power is kind of taken away by the Electoral College and everything like that and so on and so forth. So is it actually requiring a really well-informed population? And yes, democracy, for it to not go down the rabbit hole of putting bad people in power. It really does require the population to be very intensely educated and, you know, make sure that the majority is not going to lead us down the wrong path. But even in a representative democracy, a republic, it is extremely crucial that we have as many engaged people as possible because we still have a system where those electors represent a certain segment of the population. And having a more engaged citizenry actually allows for that electoral college to be the most accurate it can be in order to facilitate the putting into power of someone or people, or in this case the president, that actually align with the largest amount of people who are going out there and voting. And if you want to facilitate change in your country, guess what? You're going to have to get out there. You're going to have to vote. You're going to have to encourage other people to vote. And even just having those conversations with other people besides the fact that it is satisfying just to talk to somebody else and have a good conversation, meet somebody new, but also you can be enlightened yourself. Maybe there's a situation you haven't thought about and you talk to somebody and say, oh, wow, oh, hey, I didn't think about that. I, I'm sorry that happened to you or I'm happy that happened to you. I hadn't thought of that position before. Thanks for enlightening me. Just broaden your horizons. And that's exactly what political and social and cultural engagement will make you do. So we're going to jump to our last article very, very quickly that comes from Counterpunch, and the headline is, uh, sarcastically put, uh, Pity the British. So what the author goes on to talk about here, and this is one thing that I've hit on this a lot. I've hit on the, the fall of Britain, its fall from grace, and how the U.S., in, to some degree, is following some of the key paths, you know, the over the overly large boom time in the economy, the over-consumerism, in like the 2000s, the focus on a financial economy, the de-connecting uh, of the U.S. dollar to, or sorry, the decoupling of the U.S. dollar to gold, uh, overexertion on the world stage, too many military. But I've talked about all of these different things before, and now there's an article talking about uh, Britain getting involved where it doesn't necessarily have to be involved. Uh, I think it's funny the way they frame it. They frame it kind of like a Falklands uh, Island war where the Margaret Thatcher was trying to defend a territory off of the coast of Argentina, and Argentinians wanted to take it back, so Margaret Thatcher sent it down there. It was like a, I think it was a two-month war. It was a very short war, and it rallied the British people, and now they have another incident in uh, the <laughs> Southern American region, and the author's saying, this is just another attempt to rally the British people. I'm going to be honest with you. Even if the British people did win mer militarily in an engagement like this, I don't really think it would rally the people as much. One, because there's a much stronger anti-war movement nowadays, and also information disseminates very quickly, so you would actually be able to see the opposite side's point of view in a lot of these things but also because I just don't think the British population cares that much about these areas. It's not like there's a colony 
there in the this location. There was a previous colony. There's not now. It's not like there's an active population and colony living there like in the Falkland Islands when Argentina tried to you know, claim sovereignty back over them again. So I'm just going to leave out, lead with the first two paragraphs. It will outline everything. You can go read this article for yourself because it really is a really interesting one. And it also shows another path of kind of pointless actions to exert power on the world stage that the U.S. could very well fall into in the future. And if we start having, you know, really cruddy wars in the future, you can uh, come and reference this and say, oh, well, um, Alex said that they may end up getting into some wars that they didn't need to, and it was kind of emblematic of the U.S. decline. So, quote, bread and circus. That was the Roman formula for governance. The latest U.K. government ploy, however, omits the bread and jumps straight to the circus. The U.K. has sent a warship that will inflame a delicate 100-plus-year border dispute between two Caribbean nations, Venezuela and Guyana. The government of the U.K. should be at pains to right a wrong that the U.K. committed 124 years ago. Instead, the U.K. is threatening Venezuela with a warship, a situation that could very quickly escalate into a regional conflict. And like I said, if you want to read more, you want to hear about the encompassing, the whole history of the pact, things like that, you can read this article along with any of today's articles. You can find them in the link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Uh, before we end, though, because normally I do say that towards the end, uh, we're going to do our daily delight. So we can end on a positive note, and this one comes from Parade Pets. I've been grabbing a lot from them recently. And the headline reads, Little Goat struts into the barn pretending he's a Belgian drought horse. It is too funny. So, quote, in the video, we're looking at the world from inside a horse stable at what looks like the end of the day. In a short 30-second video, we meet a little goat named Snickers who, after meeting his older siblings. So the whole end of the story here is these horses, they come trotting back in. You know, they're ready to retire. They're really tired. And then Snickers, he comes in with his little trot. He's like, yeah, this is my barn now. And he just he has a certain little swagger to him, which is absolutely adorable. I would honestly recommend you go re watch the video you can find the like i said the link in the description below that like and subscribe button also down there you can find the link to the podcast on spotify pocket cast google podcast as well as podvine if you want to download it and listen to it on the go and the twitter handle down there is at your daily flip where i post a twitter tirade every tuesday and thursday just a little some some not so structured not as many quotes just kind of off the top of the head thinking or something i've been reading about and i've had a little bit of insight, or, you know, I could just be repeating old tropes, but in a fun and aggravated way, because it is called a tirade for a reason. So, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe, don't die.